Hello and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at A State Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Adam Gaslowitz and Robert Port, and we're talking about exit and succession strategies for closely held business owners. And now it's time to introduce our guests. We are pleased to have with us today, Brian Kep, Senior Vice President, Regional Wealth Strategist, Private Wealth Management and Regions Bank, and Cardell McKinstry, Director of M&A Tech Services for Habif Arigeti and Wynn. Let's start first by having each of our guests introduce themselves. Cardell, uh, why don't you tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice and your firm's practice? Yes, uh, my name is Cardell McKinstry. I'm with Habif Arigeti and Wynn. Been in uh, primarily uh, in the accounting field uh, for about 15 years. Our services uh, at Habif Arigeti and Wind are we're a public accounting firm. However, we also provide consulting services. Uh, in my role as director, primarily focus on uh, buying and selling of businesses and the tax uh, issues that, that must be addressed as a part of that process. Very good. And Brian, tell us about uh, your firm and your practice. Well, thank you, Robert. It's a privilege to be here. My name is Brian Kep. I am a regional wealth strategist at Regions Private Wealth Management. And Regions, uh, as you know, Regions Bank is, is a full service uh, investment and planning firm uh, throughout, uh, obviously, the Southeast and, and beyond. Uh, my role there is that I work with our business, uh, so our corporate and commercial clients, as well clients in wealth management that, look at, that are looking at preserving and transferring their wealth, specifically uh, in regards to entity structure and uh, legacy planning. Uh, my background is an attorney. I don't practice law for Regions uh, Bank, and as well as certified financial planner. You are what we might call a recovering attorney. You've perhaps been through the 12-step program. Very, very much so, probably still on step 11. <laughs> All right, well, let's start this way. In preparing for this, this show, I, I was doing a little research, and I came across a book that had or referenced a study that said that 70% of all wealth transfers, generally between families, fail, which really shocked me. And the point they made when they looked into it further, that it's not because of tax implications. For example, there's apparently this this myth that family farms are being sold left and right to pay for taxes or businesses are being sold left and right to pay for taxes. But it's because of failure to plan for this and to communicate with those, particularly in the business area, who may take over the, the business and, and lead it forward. We thought that would be a good way to start this conversation. And I guess I'll ask each of you, do you sense that that assessment is correct and, and lead us into what in each of your practices you do to help increase the 30% success rate of having a successful transfer. Brian, let's start with you. You know, first thing I always say is that unless you're um, Chipper Jones, uh, 30% is, is generally failure. <laughs> so, uh, so batting 300. But nevertheless, I think the first thing to think about is e even if you look at that statistic to second to third generation, which generally is a 12% successful transition rate, and then beyond that, 4% from third to fourth generation. I think that what we see is that as the family tree continues to grow outward, what simply happens is, is that changes occur from a family dynamic standpoint and from a goals and aspirational standpoint in regards to what ultimately is going to happen with the business. So 
Robert, you're exactly correct in the sense that I believe that a lot of these uh, business owners have great counsel. So they've got great attorneys that they work with. They've got great CPAs that are taking care of them. If they're looking at the capital markets, they generally partner with, with good firms that allow for them to think about um, the buy side uh, ideas and, and, and risks and consequences. But simply what just happens is, is that you're running so hard, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, it's your baby, it's, it's your craft, and simply sometimes things just get away from you. So I think that the best way to think about how do you improve that 30% statistical ratio is thinking about goals and aspirations. What ultimately, where do you want to go? Not what you need, but what you want from, a, from the future in regards to a transaction or, or from a family legacy uh, plan, and then move forward and, and, and work with a team to get you to where you need to be. Cardell, uh, this, this book described the transition, and, and Brian even pulled it out further, third and fourth generations, that, that they go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in a generation or two, the point being that you know, there's the increase in wealth and then it's, it's dissipated. What, what's your a sense of that, and how do you approach those issues in your practice? Uh, typically what we do is we try to, being an accounting firm and, and being a, an intimate advisor of, of the business, we try to link the forecast not only to you know, kind of financial goals, but also going forward and, and understanding the company and what they're trying to do and, and the vision and what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, you mentioned estate planning being one of the issues that, that needs to be kind of on the forefront of a lot of people's issues, but also developing a plan. And when we say developing a plan, exactly what do we mean? We mean, you know, kind of coming up with a succession valuation. We mean coming up with a liquidity event. We mean defining, you know, what, what those issues might be in terms of control, in terms of identifying leaders within the company that are going to lead it forward and what is being done to develop those leaders uh, kind of going forward. So it's, it's really a full, it's a full comprehensive plan that must be instituted and that takes time. Right. When, when, when you talk about succession planning, uh, can you distinguish that from exit planning? In terms of succession planning, we're, we're really, uh, succession planning really, really leads to who is going to lead the business. Whereas a, you know, an exit plan is how are we going to exit the business? And usually that's where I come in and, you know, exiting the business in the most tax efficient manner. Uh, so succession, we, we would really focus on, you know, continuing to grow the business, continuing to, you know, make sure the fundamentals are carried forward in terms of a management style, an approach to customers, uh, developing the business there uh, in terms of, you know, selling the business or exiting the business. Uh, that That's that's a different path or, or a different a different criteria which must be established and, and, and considered and various assessments must be made at that time. Yeah. I imagine a lot of the succession plan failures happen because they either happen suddenly or without a lot of planning or forethought. When, when is the best time to start thinking about succession planning and, and starting to, to map that out? It's our goal to have people always thinking about succession planning, you know, the realistically, realistic. <laughs> no, but realistically, what you do is, is what we found is, you know, as a part of as a part of your, your management style, uh, bringing this up in terms of going forward and, and identifying those leaders. I mean, that that's really uh, because it's, it's not it's not a matter of identifying who's going to lead. It's a matter of, you know, making sure that they're that they are, you know, mentoring the, or, or, or shadowing the right individuals being provided with the right opportunities for decision making currently while the while, while you know, uh, I would call them a, a current generations leaders is there. So it's really the development of the management team uh, that's going to dr drive the success of the business. So implementing any strategy uh, must must always include, you know, some 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 form of overlap uh, in terms of in terms of, you know, various leaders within the organization. 
You know, we our firm does exclusively litigation, and what we often find is that their disputes develop because people aren't groomed, because there's no communication. This is sort of almost dumped in their laps, you know, when the patriarch or matriarch passes on. So one of the things we see is the difficulty in getting entrepreneurs who, as you said, are invested in their business 24-7 to, to take the time or to uh, have the energy to, to think long-term about, about going forward with that. Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts about, about that? Well, I, th- I think the first thing that I've learned in my career and is to be very respectful of the business owner, business ownership team. And the reason being is, is that I'll never know their business as well as they do. Uh, so even with specialties in wealth management, even with specialties in the capital markets, I believe that businesses are so unique and the dynamics with them are, are, are so different that an owner is going to understand to a degree their business best. So what really we need to do when we come to the table is to really bring principles to help guide them to get them ultimately to, to, their, to their destination point, however they define that. And I think that really building off of that first question, the first thing that I would say in regards to the control element would be is that 100% of the business owners that, that we work with need a contingency plan. And, and so that really, in my mind, is the first crystallization event to say in regards to getting to the table and thinking about a lot of the control issues that erupt is what happens, you know, the what if questions, the negative things, which we'll get out of the way first, which is if, what if you die? What if you become disabled? What if you have um, an incapacity issue? But let's talk about even the positive things, which is what if you just simply want to, for six months, leave the business and go travel the world? You know, what if you want to, you've got two college age children and you want to take a year and just go visit them and, and watch them play lacrosse. So it's, it's, it's bringing those elements to the table and not necessarily having a fear factor, but really raising a, a balanced approach to say, okay, you know, thing, take control of this. Either, either you do it or it's going to take control of you. You have control. Tell me what, what, what you want. Are your clients, either of you, are your clients bringing up that issue? I'm so wedded to my business, I don't have time for my family. Or is that something that outside advisors are picking up on and saying, you know, you're working all the time. You don't know your kids. You don't know your spouse. Um, maybe you should find a way to be able to dial it back a little bit and have your business continue while you have a life. I think that as practitioners, I think that we obviously bring that up to them probably 97% of the time. Uh, and, and so from that perspective, you know, it, it's really having the talk of them say, you know, sometimes if you step away, your business actually becomes more valuable. And so think about the people around you in regards to succession plan, because you could actually make more money if indeed you do take a step back. And just to kind of pick up that thought, it typically where we start off a lot of our meetings is not before we dive into the numbers, just honestly, where are you? You know, let's talk about the business, your vision. How do you feel about, you know, the current market and things of that nature? So some of these issues can be brought up, you know, in just in general conversation with clients, if you will. And, and as long as you're a part of their trusted advisor team, uh, I feel like they are, while they might not take your advice, <laughs> they are at least listening to your recommendations. And that brings up something I was thinking about and, and wondering about how each of you approach this, which is when you get, let's, let's call it a, a new client who you for C has these issues. Can you sort of walk us through how you approach 
dealing with these issues with them, vetting, you know, whether it's accession or exit or liquidation or what, you know, the, the various possibilities that they have looking forward. Just sort of walk us through how you think about that and how you might present it to, to the business owner. Well, I think more information out of the gate is always better. And so uh, what I always like to do is lean on the, the great team that I work with to be able to provide for us some financial information. And, and if, if we have somebody that's worked with that client in the past, whether it's a referral or, or somebody internally, that um, we, we, we try to understand goals and objectives going in. That being said, I always like to hear that from the business owner him or herself. And, and, and the reason for that is that things get lost in translation. We never want to assume what, a, what an owner wants to do with, with, with their company. You know, so, so from there, I think that where I would start would really be with three questions, which would be you know, the how. If you could paint the Picasso, if you could draw it for me, how ultimately you want to transition your business, how would you do it? What do you envision? Okay, The when. You know, what is your timeline? I think this is extremely vital in regards to you know, a lot of the work that the capital markets is going to do, if indeed it's a third-party sale, but as well, if we're looking at doing a legacy type of transfer for the planning attorneys to be able to, in essence, be able to do the proper work from, from a gift and estate tax perspective to set the timeline to make sure that that is flush, what, what is the timeline to make sure that it's, it's reasonable? And then the other question would be is how much? So if it's a third-party situation, what do you need to garner from that transaction to have the lifestyle that you want, not what you need? And then secondly, if indeed it's a family transfer, how does that look in regards to cash flow to the first generation and as well bestowing those gifts? And if it's a sale type of situation to the, to the second, potentially third generation, how does that interflow work to make sure that all family, family members are, are happy and content and, and we're moving forward as a unit? So I, I think that we start there. And, and the, 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 you know, the, the other thing that I, I make sure that I disclose out of the gate is there's real no right answers to these questions. It's a range of things. I never said, well, I've actually met one person that said, hey, I'm going to sell it on this date. I'm going, to get, uh, uh, I'm going to get this. And those three guys in the back of the room, they're buying it. But I've never really seen it where, where a specific answer to those three questions ha- has resulted in ultimately the, the, the final outcome. So it really is a range of issues. And that gives us the ability then to start really planning with great data. No, I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent approach. Uh, a lot of times what we do or, or I have the benefit of is, 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 you know, being a part of a firm where people just kind of bring us transactions. We, we have a, we, we have a business owner and they feel like the maturity is right in the company for them to maximize the value. And so a lot of times in terms of exploring, maximizing that value, or as a part of that, uh, a lot of these questions get flushed out. And you, and you probably have a, a, a better opportunity or more opportunity to see that uh, as time goes on. I mean, you have a big accounting firm, so you're often doing your firm is often doing the accounting work for a business owner for, for many years. That is correct. And so they sort of see the changes and the growth and the development and they're probably in a better position to notice that certain discussions ought to start happening now as opposed to later. That is correct. That's correct. And, and so I, I, would al- I would always bring that up to everyone. You know, we have the visibility of financial records. You know, we understand kind of uh, the, the management teams, where they are. And so sometimes we even say, you know, maybe it's time for you to all start thinking about maybe a recapitalization, maybe an exit strategy or, or you know, the, the business is prime. We have other clients who receive various multiples that, you know, and, and your, your business is the type of business that, that we typically uh, see that is going out in the marketplace and 
maybe you should start exploring. So even if it's not on the forefront of a of a business owner mind, a business owner's mind, sometimes we have that benefit of bringing that to, that idea to them, and and sometimes that's very good in engaging the and starting the conversation. Uh, and so we use that as a catalyst to you know. So so, so what percentage <laughs> of the businesses you're seeing are transitioning uh, from one generation to the next with, within family groupings as opposed to being sold to third parties? Is it mostly within families? Uh, I would say it's mostly within families. However, that, that starts a very difficult conversation. Uh, yeah. and, and that difficult conversation being, is, is, the, uh, is the second generation ready? Uh, the, answer, and the answer is usually no. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, well, the answer is hopefully you've been grooming them throughout this process, uh, you know. And, and how early and hopefully very early in this process you involve that second generation so this is not simply a top-down set everything up and then shazam one day junior or daughter your president correct um and that is often i think a very difficult sort of grooming process if you will an educational process and and i'm presuming you strongly encourage clients who are trying to transition a family business to to bring the family members in to get a determination as to who's competent, who may be actively involved, who may be, you know, sort of just stay at home and clip coupons, if you will. Walk us through how you deal with those issues, because those obviously can create a lot of tension and potential mistrust and, and family disharmony. Yeah, this is the unique aspect of dealing with closely held businesses. Uh, it's it's the family dynamic aspect, and, and typically, what we've seen just just from our just from a lot of our experiences, you know, if if there's a particular owner who wants to hand it down from one generation to the next, typically they've done a good job of exposing the second generation to various operations and aspects within the business. How well have they done in the past, <laughs> you know, giving them opportunities to excel in the future? So, you know, this concept that we're bringing. The ultimate valuation that you will receive, if you're thinking of an extra strategy or even even succession plan, uh, you understand that the business must continue to perform. And if you put the business in the hand of someone who's not performing, you're not doing anybody any favors. Uh, you're really uh, devaluing the company. And so nobody wants to do that. So we've seen some really careful considerations, but it's something that usually is is presented to us <laughs> as opposed to us recommending it you know, recommending it to a particular client. So entrepreneurs always want their kids to take over the business. That's, that's pretty standard uh, thought process. A lot of them really shouldn't want their kids to take over the business. Uh, do, you, do you ever have those kinds of difficult conversations with your clients? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, let the games begin. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, definitely. I think that the first thing that, that we often see is that when, when we get involved in a case, it could be anywhere from the beginning of having the thought of transitioning my business to we're at the process, we're six weeks away from selling it, and we're working with a capital markets from what do we do now? You've always got to be prepared for any type of situation to occur. I think that the first thing in regards to children is that when you're walking into that situation, a lot of times you're not going to have all of the information. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times that information is, is, is going to be either secondhand, so it may be we think, or two, if you've had the opportunity to talk with the, the, the founder or, or business owner in regards, there's going to be obviously a thought process already in place in regards to uh, the role for that child. I think the way that you really approach it is, is, is looking at you know, the talents of the family and making sure that people are slotted best in regards to the success of that unit, because if that doesn't occur the likelihood of being in that 70% ultimately goes up. 
And the worst situation that you want to have is that the founder needs to come out of retirement to be able to come in and save the business. And I've unfortunately seen that in a couple of circumstances. So um, again, it's it's a conversation that is going to vary on a case-by-case basis. A lot of times it's going to involve a, a lot of additional professionals. And really what you need to do is you need to tell the solution to really how the family and the founder really handles its business. So some of them are, are very open and honest and there's free ideas and quite frankly, judgment at the table in regards to here's what I think you did. Here's what I think you did. And then there are families that hold it inside and we need to be able to, to, to shepherd and, and, and move those cases in the right direction to make sure that, again, the process continues. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts. I'm Robert Port, and with me is my partner, Adam Gaslowitz, from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We are talking with Brian Kep, Senior Vice President, Regional Wealth Strategist for Regions Bank Private Wealth Management, and Cardell McKinstry, Director of M&A Tech Services for Habif, Arigetti, and Wynn. Let's pick up on the last uh, point you were making, Brian, which deals with, with transition to family members. Now, not all family members are either interested and or competent in getting involved in the business, you know, if, if there's more than one sibling. How do you deal with the reality that some will be interested and competent and involved and others who may end up with a share of the business through inheritance or otherwise are not and may just sit home and expect their their distributions periodically. And we see, and it leads unfortunately to a lot of disputes and litigation, that that in fact creates a lot of disharmony. How do you deal with that dynamic? It is the toughest question in wealth management. And I actually will say that to, to a client of ours when we address it, which is multiple children, whether it is same marriage or, or, or multiple marriages. And we have the issue of one, allowing for the business to continue in, in perpetuity, but then secondly, making sure that we treat the children how the, the, the founder or the owner wants to treat, treat them. And, and, and so uh, there's a number of dynamics that come into play. Number one are, are, are the, the parents on the same page, which is, which is an in- interesting question because there have been situations where we, we've seen um, family members go through a planning process to be able to make the case to the other spouse, you know, to come up with the ideas. Secondly is the children in the business, and there's a lot of sweat equity that goes into that. So if you think about inheriting a business interest, and let's just say theoretically that business interest, um, let's talk about just two children, $10 million, $5 million business interest, and $5 million to equalize the estate, Okay. If the child that owns that $5 million business interest obviously inherits that and they're working there, that business interest could go to $50 million. It could go theoretically to zero. Child two that's not part of the business gets a cash value of $5 million, and, and now you have market forces in play. But you, you've got this risk element, the, this risk premium question that always comes into play. So my answer generally is it's art, not a science. And for the business owner, it's ultimately how you define wealth equality. Is it share and share alike to the dollar? Is it my daughter has been involved in this company for 15 years and has sacrificed? And so um, she gets the opportunity and we're going to create another type of wealth equalization option, whether it's through inheritance or life insurance or something to that degree for the second child, but really give them the power 
you can you can run a, a thousands of different equations and 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 that's what we can do but give them the power to say lead me to the answer yeah well you you approach it as as we all do from a risk reward uh concept and and what happens to that value and and i'm i'm reminded of a situation i saw where there was a family member who got their share and wasn't involved in the business and you know enjoyed the distributions for years and all this resentment was generated and obviously from a legal perspective they're certainly entitled to that you know if i buy shares in coca-cola i'm entitled to their dividends and i don't work at coca-cola but that that is often i think a hard concept to convey to otherwise lay people where you know they're the the issues the resentment arises because one slaving away generating in in their minds the the benefits and the dividends and the others aren't aren't appreciative of that and just you know look in their mailbox or the the wired money into their accounts periodically how, how does does your firm uh, approach that in a similar fashion well yes like i said getting into <laughs> getting into the kind it's, of it's the, delicate right? it, it is a very delicate situation no names please <laughs> well, no, <laughs> it's a delicate situation however i think that you need to kind of reemphasize to the to the to the sibling who's running the business that they are receiving compensation and so they they are being rewarded outside of being a, an owner of the company they are also being rewarded as a member of management sure but the one working in the business if the business does well goes from 5 million to 50 million as you described they they probably think that the compensation they're getting doesn't fully compensate them for the growth in that business no no that and, and that is and that is a that's a very good point uh but you're right that's something that you know i, I i've seen that particularly on exits you know members of certain members who are part of you're right creating the wealth creating the wealth feeling like they should, you know, walk away with a, a much more substantial portion of that wealth. However, you know, as you know, legally, that is not how it works, <laughs> uh, you and, know. And that's where resentment's come from. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but however, that's that's kind of how it works in, in any third party situation. You know, any 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 member of management might not feel that they're receiving their their fair share. And so it's, it's kind of your job to renegotiate and you will. And so what we've seen a lot of times in closely held businesses is that sibling working in the business, having a little bit more flexibility in terms of what they can run through in forms of expenses and forms of, you know, comforts uh, that they that they're being afforded, <laughs> whereas the other siblings as as owners are not. That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that requires an awful lot of uh, cooperation and, and understanding and communication among the, the next generation of owners. And you know, if you've got two owners and they own it 50-50 and one's in the business, I mean, at least there's some control that is uh, kept in the hands of the person running the business. But most people have more than two children. A lot of people have more than two children. And, and when you start dividing up fractional interests so that the person running the business owns less than half the company, they often don't have the control to, to change their compensation package or to restructure things so that they're rewarded not just as a, a salary, but as a, to benefit from the growth of the business. I mean, that, that's kind of the hard part, isn't it? How you, how you balance that equity between the uh, members in and out of the uh, business? In, in, in typically, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Brian definitely chime in from here, and sometimes, you know, particularly when you're dealing with a company that has ex, uh, somewhat of an explosive growth cycle that you're seeing, what I've seen more recently is, uh, there being, you know, this kind of idea of transaction bonuses where, you know, there's a carve out of a certain percentage of a transaction for members of, you know, the management team uh, that's that goes above and beyond, particularly employee stock options or, or things of that nature. Uh, so that they say, you know, 10 percent of this transaction will will go to 
a, a specified member, specified members of the management team in order to help them, you know, kind of extract some additional value uh, from this uh, because we, we, we recognize uh, really their, their performance and their contribution to making this transaction uh, kind of move forward. And so that's how, I, that's how I've seen it, kind of a real world situation. How successful have you seen that actually be implemented? Because my initial reaction to that is that's going to foment potentially even more distrust or potential disputes between those who aren't getting that transaction bonus. So presumably there's got to be extraordinary disclosure and buy-in across the board. Otherwise, you're going to be dealing with you know, potential and, litigation. No, no, and, a bit, and a bit of, uh, you know, disclosure. I mean, everybody we see has that problem. So, so from our perspective, nobody gets it right. But, 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 we're, but we're seeing a, a, a specific slice that's, of That's why it came to mind. Well, well, you know, the one thing that I, I would say is, is when a, a third party comes in and, and they're not buying in, they're not buying the entire business. They're buying, you know, let's just say they're buying 40%. And when that third party puts a significant premium on the fact that management must stay in place, the, the individual's that we're buying into is not just the company and the underlying fundamentals. We're buying into a we're buying into a very strong management team that we want to stay in place. So it's not just you know that that sibling saying I'm doing a great job. It's a recognition of that great job by a third party who's coming in with cash. And so whenever that's the case, you know it. it you can go back to the other members of the family and say, hey, look, you know, our buyer, the buyer is coming in. And not only are they saying, you know, we're going to give you a high multiple, high valuation, but we also we're putting our trust in this management team. And we believe that you all are, are the catalyst for growth. You all are, you, your, your team has identified in the marketplace ways to help this company grow and become a profitable organization. And we're putting that, you know, we're putting basically our trust in you. We're buying a portion of the business and we want you to stay in place. And we're putting that value on you. So when an outside, to me, when an outside buyer puts that kind of premium on a management team, you know, it's hard for a family to, on the other side of the equation, say the man, that, that the team is not, that management team is not worth that value. And this may be just semantics, but your scenario suggested to me that instead of a, a bonus or incentive payment, maybe the way to approach that would be a higher agreed upon employment contract of some sort, consulting contract or something like that. The dollars presumably would be the same, but it, it might be uh, earmarked or identified more precisely to the sweat and work ethic of those who the third-party purchaser wants to stay in. That, that's correct. That's correct. And so we just often see situations where family, they're, they're not necessarily wanting to exit a business. However, they're wanting to diversify their personal holdings. And so when that's the case, you know, bringing in what we refer to as new money is always a good idea. And, and when that new money, like we said, you know, evaluates a business, does the due diligence to identify what they feel, you know, this competitive advantages of the company are. Maybe it's the management team. Maybe it's your underlying product. Uh, maybe it's your strategy in, in a particular marketplace. Uh, once they do that, you know, it's, it's, it becomes less of a family discussion and more of a, you know, to me, objective discussion where attorneys, lawyers, private wealth uh, management, you know, really your, your brain trust can say, yes, there's a lot of premium. Okay, so, so following up on that, uh, you know, a, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of, uh, of first generation wealth recognize that splitting the business up among all my children is not a good idea. One child works in the business, the others don't. 
And what I'd really like to do is give the business to the one child that works in it and give other assets to the other kids. But a lot of entrepreneurs don't have any other assets or don't have any other assets that sort of equal the value of that business. What, what do you do with those kinds of situations? Well, I think that the first thing that, that one would think about is obviously go right back to the, to the balance sheet and see, you know, number one, if you're married, making sure that your, your surviving spouse obviously has, has adequate income, whether it's from the business or from other means. I think you start thinking about some additional, what I'd call non, maybe non-traditional or traditional substitutes. I think insurance, there's a great potential leverage play in the sense that uh, whether it's bought through the company or use of a split dollar plan or something to that degree would allow for a equalization benefit in trust, generally an irrevocable life insurance trust uh, that could be paid on every year and, and paid up. So that way you do have that, that ongoing equalization present. And, and so that just really comes down to a cash flow question uh, in regards to the business and also personally and, 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 and how you're subsequently taxed and how best to, to title and hold that. Uh, I think another, another option that we see a lot of is real estate. And so um, a situation where it may not be the best idea for children who are not all involved in the business, business to be owners of the business. And, and a buy-sell group, by the way, I think would be obviously vital in, in, in all these circumstances to make sure that we've got the opportunity to get people out with, with the right appraisal number. But the ability to have real estate that, for, for example, you have a long-term lease between the business and that real estate uh, building or, or parcel, which then allows for ongoing income to other family members and also a bricks and mortar asset can also provide a level of equalization and as well the ability to share in, in ultimately um, the growth of, of the overall family company. I, I think the other thing too is this, is that I think we're, since 2008, and, and I think that that's going to be, if, if you look at really a, a, a turning point in regards to business transition, 2008, a lot of business owners were, were, were high, they were sitting, and then they didn't do anything. And su- subsequently that year happened and the economy obviously declined and, and a lot of business owners lost a lot of business value. They also lost some access to credit. I think today, I think that we're moving towards uh, more of a fluid model, which private equity, for example, is the ability to take a second bite of the apple. And so I think what we're seeing is really, to a degree, a a transition where the the old style family transition way may not be the way that we see moving forward ever again. And and so it's, it's open to all these type of concepts and really kind of sitting down with the whiteboard and saying, how do we get you from here to there that ultimately is, is the best road to prosperity? Do you, do you ever tell your clients that uh, while you may want to transition this business to your children, that selling it is really the best, is in the best interest of both you and your family? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a lot of clients, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm an, I'm an accountant. So everybody wants to talk about maximizing value. Mm-hmm. And so you have to talk about, you know, is the value best with, with members of, of, of family being members of management or is the value best, you know, basically taking an exit strategy or is the, be, you know, kind of a, an approach you sell the majority, you're willing to give up control for an opportunity to get that second bite at the apple. Yeah, I think it comes down to specific industries. I mean, there's there are industries and and products per se that uh, have a have a window of opportunity. And and if the market becomes flooded with 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 competitors, or if you do have a specific type of strategic sale, it may be that once in a lifetime chance that you really need to be open to that idea. And 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 so I'm working with 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 a family now that said they would never sell. And lo and behold, a strategic opportunity came along. And they're huddling uh, now to make that decision to, to see if the numbers are there to make it work for the family. I think that the, that the, there's always pros and cons with anything. 
I think that the quote unquote downside of that opportunity would be number one, making sure your tax planning is done correctly. Two, thinking about if you do have family members that are in the business, how, what happens after you turn in the keys? Do they stay? Are they going to go? And then three, ultimately, family legacy and wealth. How do you want your children to inherit that potential money? And, and, and ultimately, those are all game changers to, to think about. Let's, let's focus for a minute on, and you, you've just mentioned one of the considerations is the tax consequences or implications of doing that. What, um, talk a little bit about the, the different strategies and whether there are you know, advantaged ways to, to accomplish this that uh, you know, is all part of your toolbox as you look at these situations. Yeah, typically when we're looking at a, at a situation, it's, you know, are, are you trying to, is there any opportunity if, if you're going to uh, stay on in, in a ownership magnitude to defer to taxes down the road? That's what we're trying to do. We're, we're always trying to defer taxes uh, because, you know, deferring taxes is, is, is what everybody wants to do. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's an opportunity really to diversify without, you know, triggering a tax event. That's one way, you know, typically uh, there are tax-free mechanisms in order to help us get there, particularly uh, exchanging stock for stock in terms of potentially there, there, there are a myriad of structures, but the objectives have to be defined first. All right. Do you just want cash? Well, if you just want cash, there's little limited opportunity, <laughs> if any, uh, in, in order to, you know, defer the taxes. Are you trying to sell the employees? Are you trying to sell outside of the company? You know, are you, are you considering an ESOP exit strategy? Are you considering selling the private equity? Just you have to identify what those objectives are first, and then we can pull into the toolbox in order to help achieve that, you know, dynamic of what we're trying to do. And so, uh, you know, what you'll find a lot of times is, not to get too technical, but lots of buyers, they want to get a step up in assets. So they want to buy your assets. However, you want to sell them your stock <laughs> so you can get capital gains, which is preferential treatment. And so it, there are different uh, tax strategies and dynamics to where we can bridge that gap. Uh, and so it's, it's, you know, from a tax perspective, uh, which is an area that a lot of people aren't as it's a very nuanced area to me. And a lot of, er a lot of people aren't, aren't as, aren't as, you know, aren't as knowledgeable of, we have to kind of bridge that gap in the knowledge. There are opportunities. It's just, you know, are you walking away? Are you continuing on? Are you staying on? How long are you going to stay on? You know, what do you think is going to happen to capital gain rate? That's always a question. <laughs> should I, should I just go ahead and do it now? Should I, you know, I'm thinking about moving to Florida. Should I wait? Uh, you know, <laughs> so that I, I don't have a state income tax hit, you know? And so that those are the kind of questions that we get from clients and that have to be considered. Uh, whenever we're doing anything, uh, I'm thinking about giving money away. Should I do it now? Should I put money in, you know, should I give some of my stock to my church before I sell? This is a great opportunity to, you know. Those are great tax advantages. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it, it's kind of achieving those various goals, but we have some tools in order to help us get there. So. All right, well I was going to say, Cardell brings up a lot of great points. I, I, I think, first of all, a lot of times it's all about the basis. So where are you sitting and, what, and what's, the, uh, what's the gap and what am I going to have to pay? I think the other thing, too, is, is often situs. I think, I think the one thing that a lot of times clients that we see often you know, come to us with that, that we just need to counsel them on and, and, and work with their tax attorney and accountant on is, is that a lot of times the, the capital gains, ordinary income, gift and estate tax, all these things kind of merge into one. And I think keeping in mind that the income tax code and the gift and estate tax code are two different things is extremely important, specifically on a family transfer type of situation, because 
you need to look out on both fronts in regards to what is the most efficient and effective way of, of, of getting the transition done correctly. All right, let me ask you one easy wrap-up question. Maybe easy, maybe not. Uh, on, the, on the situations you've seen where there was a successful transition from generation to generation, what was, what was different about those than the ones that we see that never successfully transitioned to the next generation? I think a solid estate plan out of the gate is important. And so I'll, I'll tell you about a successful one here in Atlanta that, that I had the privilege to work with. They took three runs at a potential sale on the third try. Third time was the charm, but 18 months prior, uh, they did a full estate plan. They did a spousal access trust. They also did some situs planning in regards to trust in, in, in another state to be able to take advantage of, of, of some state income tax exemption opportunities. And lo and behold, they were able to put probably about an additional million dollars back into their pocket. Most importantly, those interests were protected. The family was happy. And, and I remember that meeting with the son and the daughter where we sat in the conference room, wealth advisor, myself, and it was just a wonderful day because uh, mom and dad were able to reveal this is what we did. So they sold the business. They ended up selling the business yeah. at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, and, and again, though, it was, it, was, it was three tries both times. The credit fell through for the potential buyer. Third time was the charm. But they had the architecture in place. But also, I think what was really great about them was great family communication. They, they didn't reveal everything to the, to the kids. But I remember in that meeting when they found out what mom and dad had accomplished, it was it was one of the, it was unbelievable. It was just one of the quite frankly best moments of, of my career to see that happen uh, with my own eyes. All right, Cardell, anything unique to the ones that succeed? Uh, I think planning is the key. You can say that a thousand times, but implementing a plan and, and having a, having that plan reviewed and and putting that plan into motion. I think those are the the unique factors that you're going to see as a part of any successful plans and, and the ones that I've seen. Uh, there's always going to be a, a few bumps in the roads, a few unexpected turns in any process, but uh, having that plan in place is is the most important. And revealing certain aspects, like Brian said, to all members of the plan. You know, I, I think a little bit of the discourse occurs when you know, decisions are made about individuals and then it is not revealed. <laughs> so people don't understand the motivations uh, behind certain decisions that are made. So uh, I, I think that whenever you see whenever you see a successful transition, it is one that starts and, and it's rooted. And in, in like Brian said, that an architecture that's put together and not, not to say not to toot our own horns, but <laughs> with no, the assistance no, ahead, of advisors, you know, your 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 entire your, your entire brain trust must be on board. Right. Uh, and so that, that's, what, to me, the unique factor. Yeah, one of the things we see, and we need to conclude in a minute, but one of the things we see surprisingly a lot, and maybe it's because of our, our practice, is you've talked about the architecture. You mentioned buy-sell agreements. There's innumerable cases in our office where none of that is in place. There's no buy-sell agreement. There's nothing in the bylaws to deal with deadlock. And it, it just creates a, a major problem, as you can w be well aware. And, and it strikes me that sometimes folks are, are penny-wise and pound-foolish. They look at professionals like us as unnecessary expenses with too much paperwork and legalese. I'm sure you impress upon your clients regularly how important it is to have these things in place. They may not prevent disputes, but in my view, they help at least give a roadmap as to what happens if things go awry. All right, let me uh, give each of you an opportunity to tell our audience how to contact you if they want to. Uh, if you can each give uh, contact information, uh, website information, email, whatever it is that you 
however you want to be contacted. Well, sure. It, it would be uh, my pleasure if, if uh, uh, to, to have contact. Anybody's listen today. Um, I am with our, uh, just tell you again about my role. I work with our East region with uh, regions, private wealth management. So that, that runs from North Carolina down to Miami and West, uh, to the Alabama, Georgia border. Uh, so I am mobile a lot, but my home team here is in Atlanta, uh, which is at 1180 West Peachtree street. Um, uh, contact information 404-221-4583. Um, also, just type in Regions Private Wealth Management into Google, and you'll see the entire um, uh, open architecture that we provide. And the thing that I want to stress is that really my component is one of so many things that we do, and I'm very fortunate to work with a great team of professionals that can provide anything from investment to trust advisory support. So, um, so again, welcome anybody to call and love the opportunity to answer any questions. All right, Cardell? And I live and die by email. So, uh, <laughs> my, you, you too? Uh, yes, yes, uh, readily available. So uh, best the best way to probably reach me is uh, Cardell McKinstry, C-A-R-D-E-L-L dot M-C-K-I-N-S-T-R-Y at H-A-W-C-P-A dot com. Uh, my, my office number is 770-353-2760. I thank you. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Brian Kep, Senior Vice President, Regional Wealth Strategist for Private Wealth Management at Regions Bank, and Cardell McKinstry, Director of M&A Tax Services for Habeff, Arigetti, and Wynn. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. 